If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 9. And we'll be at Luke chapter 9, beginning at verse 46 this morning. On February 25th, 1964, a 22-year-old boxer upset the world. Not only did he break the conventions of boxing by openly ridiculing his opponent in obnoxious and over-the-top ways, which eventually earned him a fine of $2,500 by the Boxing Commission, but he took down the current heavyweight champion of the world when the odds were 7-1 to against him. Though there was no traditional knockout, Sonny Liston did not return from his corner into the ring at the beginning of the seventh round, and Cassius Clay, soon to be known as Muhammad Ali, won the belt by technical knockout. But Ali was not done. As the bell rang, immediately he began declaring, I want everyone to bear witness, I am the greatest. I am the greatest thing that ever lived. I don't have a mark on my face and I upset Sonny Liston and I just turned 22 years old. I must be the greatest. I showed the world. I know the real God. I shook up the world. I'm the king of the world. You must listen to me. I am the greatest. I can't be beat. And now those words are played over and over and over. Almost every year on some sports program or commercial throughout this country. At the time, no one had ever seen such arrogance. Not that people didn't think it, but people didn't say it publicly. And some of what he said was surely provoked not only by the racial tension surrounding him in his day, but also his tactic of verbal intimidation to throw off his opponents. Nevertheless, the win and the antics changed the face of professional sports forever. More than that, the display changed the culture itself. Now, it's hard, very hard, historically, to argue cause and effect. But you can very clearly argue correlation. In other words, what is taking place in one area is certainly related to what is taking place in another area at the same time. And what we see is that around this time in 1964, suddenly in every area of the culture, not simply sports, there are bold displays of pride, public pride, that have not been seen before. Again, not just in the sports world, but in the business world as well, on up till today. Whether or not they know these words or where they're coming from, in the back of our minds as a culture, we have these words buzzing as the great mantra and aim of our life. I am the greatest. I am the greatest. That's the culture we live in. It's the pursuit of personal greatness, often at the expense of others. Well, that's the culture, but how about Christianity? Are we any different? Are we any different? How should we think about greatness? How do we think about greatness? How does pride get in the way of all of this, even as we are seeking to serve the living God? Well, these are all things that Jesus will talk to his disciples about in Luke chapter 9. And this morning, as we see what Jesus said to them, we also want to see what he can say to us today. So I invite you to follow along as I begin reading Luke 9 at verse 46. An argument arose among those as to which of them was the greatest. This is the twelve. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. 
John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we try to stop him because he does not follow us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on their way to another village. This is the word of God. May he bless its reading this morning. As we think about Jesus' words and actions here, we need to understand that Jesus is pointing us, just as he pointed those first disciples, towards a life driven by, influenced by, shaped by gospel humility. That is a humility made possible by and empowered by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news that he is the Savior for sinners. And this morning, as we unpack this text, we want to explore what that kind of life looks like. What does a life driven by gospel humility look like? Well, the first thing that we see is that gospel humility exhibits true greatness. True greatness. Again, verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. Now, when we hear that, there's a part of us that should immediately sit up and take notice because on some level, this is the same temptation that all of us in this room face. Even as Christians, we are likely to see ourselves as great because of the things that we do for God. Or we might see ourselves as great because of the things we don't do for God, presuming that we have achieved some kind of perfect godly balance and take pride in not showing up to certain things and being involved in certain things. Maybe we feel our greatness because of the worldly things we don't do or because of the example we believe we are setting for those around us. Still yet, our sin, our sin might be to feel that we are not great in God's kingdom and therefore to make greatness an idol which we pursue. There's probably about a dozen ways in which pride in the pursuit of greatness, either positively or negatively, can become for us a great temptation to sin. The point is, we all battle this temptation to think wrongly about greatness. And therefore, we must be on guard against it. None of us are immune to this, especially as we see it in the disciples and their desire to compare themselves to one another. The great destructive force that every Christian has fought since Jesus himself was on the earth was to judge their spirituality, their godliness by comparing themselves to others around them. None of us are immune because in many ways pride lays at the heart of every sin. So almost immediately as we read these verses, we know we all have a stake in this game. We all have a vested interest here because we're human, we're sinful, and we are tempted towards pride. But if we're Christ's disciples, we have an even greater stake in it because Jesus here helps define what real greatness is about in his kingdom. We do not want to say that all ambition is bad. The question is this, why are you pursuing greatness? What is the the root, the source, the goal of your ambition? Jesus here shows us what it should be if we are his people. Disciples are arguing about greatness and who is great among them. And verse 47 says, but Jesus knows their hearts. Though I imagine they're arguing in hushed tones away from where Jesus can actually hear them. 
the all-knowing Son of God, knows what's going on. He knows the desires and the intentions of their heart. So what does he do? Luke says, he took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you, whoever is least among you all, he is the one who is great. Now you have to wonder if on one level Jesus is thinking, if you're going to act like a child, let me show you a child. But there's more to it than that. In fact, Jesus here displays greatness before others. Greatness before others. Notice what he does. Now, I have no idea where Jesus is at or what situation he's in, but wherever it is, whatever's going on, he's able to take this child who was seemingly close by and, and, and puts it by him, put, he puts him by his side. Now, that doesn't seem like much today uh, to us probably, but it would have spoke volumes to the disciples because in their day and in their culture, the Hebrew culture, children were loved, but they weren't necessarily respected. They weren't exalted. They saw them as a gift from God, but they had no standing whatsoever in society. So while the Hebrews weren't cruel to their children, neither did they worship them and let them guide them in how they lived their lives or in how they tweaked and guided the society around them. Very much the opposite of our culture today and its sin of exalting and idolizing children. Nevertheless, when it comes to thinking of a child's greatness, consider the words of one rabbi who was a contemporary of Jesus who said that, quote, chattering with children would bring a man to ruin. Chattering with children would bring a man to ruin. In other words, the rabbis never gave any attention to children. That that was completely and exclusively the parent's responsibility. Yet here is Jesus taking one by the hand and bringing him right next to him. It was a dramatic display of the different way that Jesus viewed children, but it also served to drive home his point. Greatness in the kingdom is not like greatness in the world. Jesus said how they treated the children would be an indication of the kind of relationship they had with God himself and whether or not they were great before him. Why? Because children in any context cannot be in any worldly sense of the world called great. They they can be loved, but they aren't great. They have no power. They have no authority. They have no other sizable responsibility. They have no wealth. In other words, they can't do anything for you. They can't do anything for you. Therefore, in the world's eyes, they are not great. They are weak. And therefore, who cares? Who cares if you're nice to them? Who cares if you're nice to the person at McDonald's who puts together your hamburger? Who cares if you are nice to the person who, who, who cleans the toilets at your favorite department store? They, they have no power. They have, they have nothing they can contribute to you. They're they're in the low totem pole of society. And yet Jesus says how you treat those people, the lowliest of the lows, the people with the least amount of authority, the least amount of greatness in the world's eyes, that's how you indicate your greatness in my kingdom. When you show yourself humble and befriend such a person, it shows that you have understood God's grace who condescended to befriend you, people of no consequence compared to him. This is the upside-down value of the kingdom of Christ. True greatness in the eyes of God is seen when we take the lowest place, even befriending the lowest of people. It shows that we're not seeking recognition for ourselves. And so Jesus shows greatness before others. But what we also see is that in the kingdom, greatness comes because of Christ. Greatness is because of Christ. 
I made the point of qualifying in this sermon outline not just humility, but I'm calling it gospel humility. Why? Because there's a lot of false ideas about what humility is. If you were to go and just look up humility in a dictionary or talk to the average person on the street, they would probably not give you a biblical definition of humility. More than that, what I, I want you to see is that humility is only possible, true humility is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, for example, humility is not letting people just walk all over you. Humility is not in conflict with assertiveness or confidence or leadership. Just think of Jesus, who Paul says is the very pattern of humility, and yet he is the most commanding presence in the whole Bible. At its core, humility is about this, self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness, and that is seen in our outward priorities. Again, Paul says in Philippians 2 that Jesus was the perfect display of humility, and he summarized it in this way, he counted others more important than himself. Jesus counted others more important than himself. How can we see that evidence in Jesus' life? Paul says that the clearest picture is that he went to the cross. He, he endured suffering, he endured shame, and he did it because he counted others more important than himself. In my mind, that is an amazing contrast to the culture in which we live, where the word of the year was just proclaimed to be the selfie. The selfie. Now, I have nothing against selfies, if you know what that is. If you don't, you can Google that later when church is done. But isn't it telling that the word that characterizes our culture for the year is all about the self? It's all about the self. We'll take a yep as well as an amen here. So don't worry about it. Jesus shows two greatnesses measured not by anything but the level of humility in our lives. And that humility is seen specifically in how we relate to the lowliest around us if we're considering them more important than ourselves. But secondly, we see from the text that gospel humility eliminates competition. Gospel humility eliminates competition. Right on the heels of Jesus teaching about the nature of true greatness, the apostle John pipes up and says, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we try to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. Now, frankly, it's a little hard to know what's going on here. How are we to understand what, what John is saying? Is he confessing a sin? Is he saying, well, we goofed. This is what we did, Jesus. It doesn't sound like what you just talked about. Maybe he's looking for clarification. Well, this is what we did. Was that, was that right or wrong? Or maybe he's offering some kind of protest. Well, well, Jesus, I understand what you're saying, but clearly we've got to draw the line somewhere. I mean, I mean, surely those of us that are following you are greater than those who aren't. But Jesus doesn't really get into all that. He just comes right to the point and says this, do not stop him for the one who is not against you is for you. In his sermon on this passage, uh, Pastor Lee Duncan points out that this verse, this, these two verses have been used, uh, twisted out of their context to argue for all kinds of crazy things, all kinds of muddle-headed thinking about uh, the, the church and theology. Specifically, it's been used as a proof text to say that Jesus doesn't really care about theological difference. Jesus doesn't really care what you believe about him or God or the Bible. It doesn't matter. As long as you love each other, we all get along, we're all on the same team, it's okay. And we will see just next week. That's not what he's talking about at all. That's not what he is talking about at all. It's far from what he's saying. Jesus is talking about here an attitude of self-importance, of one-upmanship that has gripped the disciples. 
They have strived and they have struggled for a sense of self-importance driven by pride and it has made them protective of their ministry and caused them to be derisive of others. Now, as we think about this, what you may already know, what you may not know is probably on this point, the people in our churches that struggle with this the most are pastors themselves. I have to tell you that some of the best times I've had and some of the worst times I've had have come at pastor's conferences or at pastor's fellowships. Because this exact same mindset so easily grips pastors, especially in our cultural context. What causes what causes the conference experience to be either good or bad comes down to this thing, whether or not pride or humility is operating in the lives of those men. I've been to a conference and I have sat down at the table and, and often it's all people that you don't know. These are just strangers and you're sitting down to, to eat lunch and you're waiting to be told, uh, go up to the line and, and, and get your food. So everything's done nice orders. You begin talking. Where are you at? What kind of church are you at? And, and there's the one guy, so very often, whose first question is about numbers. How many are you running? What's the size of your church? How do you do things? What's your ministry model? And that person is not asking so that he can rejoice in what God is doing. That person is asking so that he can feel good about himself. So he can either take pride in the fact that he's using the superior church model than you, therefore he can look down on you, or he has greater numbers than you, and therefore he can feel good about himself and look down on you. Now, there's obviously a reason that any church, any person does what they do, that they choose the ministry model that they do, that there's a, there's a confidence that says, I'm doing the right thing. When you make a decision, unless you know from Scripture, God says, this is wrong, you do it anyway. If you're striving to honor God with your life, you're, you're putting together a, 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 through the grid of Scripture a decision-making process, and with confidence you're saying, I think this is the best thing I can do. But that doesn't mean you inherently look down at others who have chosen to do something different particularly in a different context than you. There's a real danger that our confidence can sour into a spirit of prideful competition. But Jesus cuts right through that in his word to the disciples. The one who is not against you is for you. So yes, we may disagree on secondary issues. Yes, we may do things differently. But if they are not against us, that is, if they are not preaching a different gospel then they are our partners in the fight for the souls of men and women and children around the world. And we should rejoice in their prosperity. Frankly, I think that's the hardest part for pastors. Is that when they feel like they're doing everything right, when they are truly seeking to honor God in private and in public, and they're preaching and they're leading the church, but they see, they see men doing things differently, perhaps even the same across town or across the internet other churches and and those churches are flourishing and theirs is not there's a massive temptation to become discouraged and that discouragement can often lead to a sense of pride well sure i could grow a church if i did that kind of stuff that's the very thing that jesus is aiming at here on the flip side there can be those whose church is growing who, who likewise, they feel like they're doing all the right things. And they also have the temptation to become prideful and say, look at those jokers over there. They're not accomplishing anything, but look at us. We are growing because we're doing it the right way. We're preaching the right things. Forgetting God is the one who gives the growth. 
God is the one who gives the growth. And all of this can be multiplied throughout the church in terms of small groups, in terms of ministries, in terms of individual families. And what cuts across it all is our commitment to gospel humility. This week I read where one pastor was preaching on this passage and he was Googling articles on pride. And he came across an article that initially looked pretty helpful. It was called this, How to Kill Pride. He said, that would be helpful. Click. And what he found was an article actually written by a Hindu who for a long time went on about the dangers of pride but ended the article by saying this, I don't really know how to kill pride. Thankfully, Christianity does not leave us in such a place. I'm sure that we could say a lot here, but as we think about the fact that, that, that pride is such an issue, we want to not just think, we want to not just think about what, what gospel humility looks like, but if we don't have it, how do we get there? How do we cultivate it? How do we kill pride and grow in godliness? So let me just offer here three practical things for cultivating gospel humility, three simple strategies. You could do all of these before the sermon's even done. First of all, remember God's glory. Remember God's glory. Numbers 23, we're told, God is not a man nor the son of a man. The first place we want to go in humbling ourselves is God himself. Considering him in all of his glory, in his being, in his work, in his might, in his power, in his authority, and pretty soon any sense of pride you have is going to be vaporized. If you say, well, where do I go to do that? I would start with Job chapters 38 through 41 and the end of Romans 11, which we just sang. But then secondly, you also not only need to remember God's glory, you need to remember God's gaze. You need to remember God's gaze. Here's the the shocking reality. This great and glorious God, this eternal king who is far superior than us in every way, nevertheless says he finds his gaze drawn towards those who are humble. At the end of what has been called the Romans of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah's work, chapter 66, God says this, All things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We see the same thing, the same theme runs throughout the Bible. In Psalm 138, God regards the humble. In Psalm 9, God never ignores the cries of the humble. In Isaiah 57, God says He makes His presence known among the humble. Do you want to be known by God? Do you want intimacy with God? Then strive for humility. Let that be an incentive to you. When you feel pride begin to well up, say, this is not something God wants to bless. This is not someone He wants to be with. This is not someone He wants to commune an intimate fellowship with. He seeks the humble. Therefore, I want humility in my life. Finally, lest you you find yourself crumbling under the weight of the pride that does exist in your heart, you thirdly need to remember God's Son. Remember God's Son. Paul again says this. Let's just, we've alluded to it twice. We've sang it once. Let's just read the text now. Philippians 2. Paul tells the Christians there, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That is to say, it is possible for you to have this same attitude because you are united to Christ by faith in him. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not not count equality with God a thing to be grasped 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. See, here's the thing. Jesus is not only the perfect example of humility, he is the Savior who gives us grace, saves us from the sin of not having humility, and allows us to cultivate real humility in our lives. It is through the gospel of Christ, the saving work of Christ, that we're not only saved from sin, we are also sanctified from sin. James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, let us seek a gospel humility in our lives. And when we've learned it, we'll find finally that gospel humility endures opposition. Gospel humility endures opposition. After the instruction Jesus has given about gospel humility, now we get to see it in action. In other words, God uh, in the flesh, Jesus Christ, practices what he preaches. First, we see that gospel humility endures opposition with resolve. It endures with resolve. Luke says in verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. God sends people, or Jesus rather sends people ahead to make arrangements, that is arrangements for him to stay. Uh, Where is he going to stay when he enters this village? But notice the Samaritans in this village reject him. Now this is the first time we've encountered the Samaritans in Luke's gospel. You may know them from other sermons and from other parts, but we need to pause here and just stop and say, okay, why is this such a big deal? Who are the Samaritans? Why are they rejecting Jesus? Well, you'll remember that the Samaritans were a group of mixed ethnicity. They were half Jew and half Gentile. That was not necessarily their choice, but came from the fact uh, back in the Old Testament around 722 during the exile when God had already booted the northern tribes out of the land of Israel because of their idolatry. The king of Assyria, who was ruling over at the time, sent some people from the surrounding area into the area of Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom after the nation of Israel was split in two. He sent them in to, 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 as it were, resettle the land. So you had Jews and Gentiles living together, and it wasn't long, maybe a generation or two, they began to intermarry. Sadly then, this... This Samaritan group that was the result were despised by both the Jews and the Gentiles. Cut off from their Jewish culture with the Samaritans. Uh, they then went on to have their own version of the Pentateuch, their own temple at Mount Gerizim, and their own version of Israel's history. They became a people unto themselves. And the ancient historian Josephus tells us that the animosity was so great between the Jews and the Samaritans that often fighting would break out and battles would rage between them. And once the intensity was so great, the Romans were brought in, not only to pacify, but also to crucify many of the rebels. See, now we're beginning to get a better understanding of why they rejected Jesus, the Jewish Messiah in their mind. Though as we read in John 4, some Samaritans loved and embraced Jesus as their Savior. Those of this town outright rejected him. Why? Luke says it was, it was because Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. The phrase is a, is a Hebrew idiom that speaks to one's strong determination. Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because that was God's plan. It was there that he would reach the climax of his ministry, offering up his own life for the sins of his people, atoning for them and their transgressions under the just wrath of God. 
But notice, Jesus would do this at Jerusalem. And the Samaritans didn't want to have any part of that. They said, we don't want nothing to do with Jerusalem. That's where the, that's where the Jews are. We, 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 we don't have anything to do with them. And therefore, they despised him for it. They wanted nothing to do with Jerusalem or the temple. They wanted, therefore, nothing to do with this Messiah who was determined to go there. Now, here's the thing. Today, Christians are often rejected because of the gospel as well. And that's what we see here. Jesus is going to accomplish the gospel, and he's rejected for it. And so often today, when we make exclusive claims like, yes, there is only one God, those who do not worship him are mistaken, and there's only one mediator between God and men, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all who trust in a different Savior will not find heaven when they die. Therefore, repent and believe the gospel. Find salvation in Christ. We are decried. We are opposed. We're called all kinds of bad things. And therefore, the temptation for us in our pride and in our vanity is to choose to be well-liked rather than to stand for the gospel of Christ. Notice that doesn't matter to Jesus, though. He remains resolute. He has set his face like flint and he will not be removed. It does not matter if people reject him or despise him. doesn't matter. doesn't matter. His heavenly Father has decreed, this is what you shall do, my son. You shall go to the cross and achieve salvation for your people. And he says, Father, I delight to do your will. Therefore, nothing can remove him from that. Neither neither pain nor pleasure will deter him from going to accomplish the gospel. Likewise, when it comes to the person and work of Jesus Christ, we should be resolute against opposition as well. Christians today will so often not be bothered by doctrinal infidelity or scandalous immorality, but only whether or not they're liked by others. And humility doesn't live that way. Humility is not concerned with bowing to the whims of what people think. Humility acknowledges I have a creator, I have a savior, therefore I have a king. And his opinion is all that matters. This is what Jesus displayed as he endured with resolve. But notice he also endures with restraint. He also endures with restraint. Jesus is rejected in Samaria. Notice how the disciples react. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Suddenly it's not hard to understand why Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. Now there's a textual issue here, meaning our oldest, most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament do not have what others have, which is three little words, as Elijah did at the end of the verse. Even if they're not original to Luke, and I don't think they are, they still capture the essence of, of James and John's thinking here. So, so, what we, so, so, so what's going on here? Well, do you remember the story of 2 Kings 1? The king of Israel at that time was the wicked Ahaziah, and at some point he falls through the lattice of his roof and he's injured, and he's lying in bed and apparently he's doing pretty poorly because he wants to send messengers to inquire of God whether or not he's going to survive this thing. Am I going to get better or am I going to die an injured man in bed? Here's the problem. He does not send messengers to inquire of the one true God. He sends them to inquire of the God of Ekron, a Philistine city, the God named Beelzebub. As the messengers are on their way, God sends his prophet Elijah to intercept them. And when he finds them, he says, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron? 
Now therefore thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the one true God, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you will surely die. That's the message of the true God to the wicked king of Israel. So the messengers go back and they tell me, he says, why are you, why are you back so soon? And I said, we, we saw this guy and he said he was a you know, prophet. Here's the message. And he hears this and he gets utterly indignant. Who would dare say this? Who would stop you like this when you're on a messenger for me? What do they look like? And the messengers say, well, he's wearing camel hair and he has a leather belt. And he goes, Elijah the Tishbite. I mean, I mean, that's exactly the way I, I read that. I mean, he says, Elijah, he knows who this is. He knows a troublemaker for his dad, and now he's going to be a troublemaker for him. He knows he is a prophet of the one true God. So what does he do? He says, look, here's what you need to do. Get a captain of the guard, get 50 men, and you go after him. And that's what they do. And they find him. And these 50 men are gathered together. They see him up on the hill, and the captain says, oh, man of God, the king says, come down. And Elijah's like, man of God, huh? All right. All right, he says this, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Apparently he was a man of God. Those guys never return. The king wonder what's happened. So guess what he does? Smart guy that he is. Get another cap and another 50 men. And guess what? They go the same thing. They see him up on the hill. They say, come down, man of God. And, the, and he says, man of God, huh? If I'm a man of God, let fire come down and consume you. And guess what? Fire comes down and consumes him. The king sends another 50 men and a captain, but now the captain in this story is different. The captain is a man of insight when he approaches Elijah. He says, oh man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the former, former captains of 50 men in their 50s. Now let my life be precious in your sight. And the Lord tells him, this guy's okay, you can trust him, go with him. So Elijah comes down off the mountain, he looks the king square in the face and says, you've been disobedient, you've been wicked, you've been rebellious, you've broke God's law, and now you're going to die the death that you deserve in your bed from this stupid fall. Not in the glories of battle, not reigning over the world as a son of David should, but as a frail, weak man, crippled by his sin. That's Elijah. A man of God, but also a man of his time. Jesus is also a man of God. More than that, he's the son of God. But he's also a man of his time. And Jesus knows it isn't the time to be like Elijah yet. That day is going to come. And Jesus himself will bring it about. He himself will judge the world with fire. But now's not the time. Therefore, on one level, the disciples' response is right. They are utterly indignant that someone would reject Jesus, the Messiah, Yet on another level, their response belongs to a different age. Just think for a moment about Jesus himself and how he sets the template here. Think in terms of all the miracles he's done and the fact that he has never done anything destructive except once. One time he saw a tree that didn't bear fruit. And he said, this is like my people Israel. They claim to have faith, but their fruit stinks. They are dead. And he curses the tree to wither and die and bear fruit no more. That's the only time in all the Gospels that he ever does anything destructive with the miraculous power that he has. Thomas Manton, the old Puritan, makes this observation. It was Christ's work to do good and only good for the life, preservation, and welfare of man. The whole story of his life was nothing else but a catalog of good works. 
You will find him everywhere going up and going down upon this errand that he might give sight to the blind, limbs to the lame, health to the sick, liberty to the possessed, life to the dead. You will find him either feeding the hungry or healing the diseased and having compassion on them that are faint and raising the dead. His miracles were not such as tended to destruction, but acts of succor and relief. Of all his miracles that he ever wrought, he never wrought any in malice and revenge. He used not his divine power to make men blind or lame or to kill any. No, not even his worst enemies. We could have easily done it and might justly have done it. He rebuked his disciples when they called for fire from heaven against those who rejected his person and showed that his furious, zelotic spirit did not suit with the meekness and persuasiveness of the gospel dispensation. Here's what Manton is getting at. When Jesus looks at these guys and he rebukes them, he says, that's not what we're about, guys. That's not what the gospel's about. That's not what I'm about. That's not what you should be about. This is not the time for wrath, no matter how just it might be. Now is the time for grace. Now is the time for mercy. Now is the time for patience. This is why Jesus can say, love your enemies and pray for them. And pray for them. That's what gospel humility should promote within us. Not a desire to get even. Even when men and women are at their worst We should not be wanting them to get their just desserts. Instead, we should patiently bear with them for the sake of their souls. So the question we ask ourselves at the end is this. Who will we exalt? Ourselves or Christ? How will we live? With vanity and pride in ourselves or with gospel humility through the power of Christ? Will we do it just when people are looking at church? Or will we offer up all of our lives in humble submission to the Lord our God and Savior? Father, what a passage, Lord. What a topic. We pray, Father, that you would be at work within us because we know left to ourselves, we cannot be a humble people. Left to ourselves, we will live in arrogance and vanity and pride. But God, we so desperately need humility because we so desperately need you. And you have promised that you will look to the one who is humble. God, you will also have promised that you will give grace to the humble and yet oppose the proud. So God, even this morning we come to you, I I hope and I pray. I come to you on behalf of all of us and say, God, help us not to be proud. But even now, let us humbly call out to you for grace. Grace, Lord, that we might be humble. Not simply following the pattern of Christ, though doing that. But God, also by the power of Christ that is at work within us. God, by your word and your spirit, God, as we set our minds on your glory, as we set your minds, set our minds, remembering that you delight to be with the humble, God, as we remember your son, our savior, God, make us to be a humble people. Kill the root of pride in our lives. And God, we ask this, not that people will look at us and say, what a humble people, but they will look at you and say, what a great and powerful, and glorious God. We ask it for Christ's sake. Amen.